James, how does James not introduce himself? Brother. Yeah. Right. If, if you're going to pull the family relation card at some time, don't you think that this would be the time? If you're writing a letter to a church and you want to say, look, I'm, I'm going to pull this the authority card. I was the brother of Jesus. But James doesn't do that. And it fits perfectly in line with what James talks about later on. James talks about humility. And we see that even in his greeting, James is being humble. He's not playing the I'm the brother of Jesus card. He's saying, I am a servant of Jesus who was my brother, but I'm a servant to him because he is the Lord. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And family relations fall way, way, way short of that. Right? That's not even a comparison to what he's doing there. And then he also says that he, this letter is written to the 12 tribes in dispersion. So these are the Jewish Christians not in Jerusalem, living outside of Israel. This is a letter going out to them. Um, now, can you imagine? A lot of churches back in this time would have been our size or smaller than what we have here this morning. And uh, the letter would, hey, hey, everybody, we got a letter from Brother James. Let's all sit down. Let's, let's all meet at Buzzy's house on Friday night. And uh, we'll, we'll sit down. Not that he doesn't have enough people there already. But we're going to go over to Buzzy's house, right? And we're going to sit down and we're going to read this letter from Brother James. We're going to get a word of encouragement. He's going to build us up. And verse 2, what does he say? Somebody read verse 2 real loud. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What a way to open a letter. <laughs> right? Hey, I know y'all are beat down. I know you're going under trials. I want to be here. I want to encourage you. First thing out of James's mouth, <clears throat> hey, guess what? You're going to have even more trials. And um, we need to look at this a little bit differently. So in verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is James asking these Christians to do? He's asking them to consider trials from a different perspective. Telling them to look at it, because when we're honest, none of us, when a trial or some kind of tribulation comes into our life, it's not our natural disposition to go, hey, another trial. Been looking forward to this. We don't do that. It's in our nature to go, oh man, not again. Here we go. But James says, look, if we approach this from a heavenly perspective, from God's perspective, we need to see the reason behind the trial, the reason behind the tribulation, and if we do that, it might help us to work through this. So these early Christians, we know they face poverty, they're facing injustice, they <clears throat> conflict, sickness, grief, all these things, James is saying, when you consider, when you, when you come up against these various trials, there is a way that if you look at them, they can bring you joy. When we see what's really going on behind the scenes, it can be a life-changing perspective. James says, look, if, if, you, if you look at it from this different perspective, 
it'll bring about steadfastness. Steadfastness, that's, that's the perspective we want to look at. Now, what's another word for steadfastness? Perseverance. Patience. Exactly. Endurance. Right? All these things, he, James is telling us, here's the key, folks. God does these things in our lives. He lets us, he allows us to go through these trials and tribulations to build up our endurance, our perseverance, our patience. See, our faith doesn't often grow. I'm not going to say all the time. I'm not going to make generalizations, right? Our faith doesn't often grow during good times. Faith more than likely grows faster stronger under the times of stress. It's during hardships, right? When our faith seems to grow, we're more aware, we, we, we tend to rely on God more, we see our need for Him uh, in a different way, more clearly, and James is telling us that, that God is using these trials uh, to, to bring about his, his, his process in them, He's sanctifying them, and uh, we see over in Romans, Paul kind of verifies what James is saying here. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope. That is what our endurance is building up our faith so that our faith gets stronger and we put more and more trust and hope and God and what Jesus does this. So basically what James is saying here in these first couple of verses is that God is using these difficulties to mature Christians. The trials are a means to an end. Let me say that again. The trials are the means to the end. And James says if you approach these things from that perspective, it's not, oh, here we go again, it's, Okay, God is going to use this in my life to bring about what he, I, I'm, 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 I have a shortcoming. God's going to bring about, He's teaching me, He's growing my faith in this area, and I'm going to look at it from that perspective. And that gives us hope. Right? That brings about hope. Uh, but not only that, how should we approach, sometimes going through a trial, uh, you ever have one of those why me moments? I do. I have them all the time. <coughs> Um, maybe it's just, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I have why me moments. There was a, uh, I was invited to speak to one of our lady circles yesterday. And uh, one of the ladies came in and she just, a friend of hers had just gone through about two years of, she had some heart problems. And then that led to her falling at some point. So she had to go have knee surgery. And then that led to some other complications. And I mean, it was just two years of something physical, one after another. And I just, I thought, if that had been me, I would have been one of those, why me? Why am I going through all this stuff? But that, that's the perspective that James wants to do. So often we come into these trials, we're a little confused, uh, we're a little aggravated. So how do we alleviate, how do we alleviate this confusion? Uh, if somebody would read verse 5 for me, that'd be great. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, what gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So, we know God is not the author of confusion, 
So how do we unconfuse the situation? It's really simple, right? We pray and we ask for wisdom. Well, that seems like a no-brainer. You know, that, that nothing huge. But do we do that? Right? It's easy to say something, but it's harder to put it into practice. We are to, when, whenever we're confused, whenever we're facing a trial, the solution that James gives us is a very simple solution. Ask God. James goes on in the next couple of verses. Look at this. This is, this is the part that really gets me excited. Why do we ask God? James then gives us some really good theology right here. He brings up three of God's attributes, a three-part theology lesson on who is God, right? Uh, verses 6 through 8, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not, oppose, uh, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man in all of his ways. Now, if we go back and look at that, James kind of talks about, look, first, God is generous. God literally holds nothing back. That's what that Greek word there means. God is literally holding nothing back. Uh, he wants, God is waiting. I would pastor say one time, God waits. He longs to bless us. He wants us to come and ask him for something. He is like a father at Christmas. Right? You got, uh, I remember when I was growing up, my dad would always say, hey, have you, have you made your Santa Claus list yet? You know, do you have your list? And my dad would take that list, and as, as much as he could, he would fulfill that wit list. And sometimes I, I think about God like that. When, when we don't ask, God is standing there waiting. When we, he wants to bless us. But we don't ask, and so sometimes he goes ahead and gives it to us anyway when we don't ask. But God wants to hold nothing back. Also in this passage here, we find that God is not partial, right? God is doing these things for all of his people. It's not just the super Christians. You know, it's not just the elders or the pastors or, you know, people that we <coughs> admire in the Christian church, that man who's never missed Sunday school in the last 65 years. Um, God is gracious to all of his people. He doesn't play favorites. Also, God is forgiving. There's no shaming. There's no mocking. There's no insulting. There's no blaming. God doesn't sit there and go, ha ha, see, I told you so. Right? There is grace to be found. And in these three little uh, attributes, James is giving us a little snapshot of the gospel, isn't he? God's graciousness is bottomless. You can't, you can't exhaust God's grace. Right? That's what grace is. Now, we have seen sometimes in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament that God does come for it. There's a line drawn. Uh, we see that with Saul. But God didn't withdraw. Uh, he didn't take Saul's salvation away. He just withdrew, you're no longer going to be the king. Right? So God does call into account for our actions sometimes. But Scripture also tells us that when we come to God in repentance and in faith, He is willing and good and just, and He will forgive us. And that's what James wants us to focus on. Uh, let's move on real quick um, and look at verse 6. Um, this man, when we have confusion, when there is doubt and we need wisdom, how are we to ask? 
What does verse 6 tell us? And we are to ask in faith. Now, would anybody in here say that their faith is completely grown? It is filled out. That you, you are exactly where you need to be in your walk with the Lord. I, right. I don't, I don't think any of us would say this, but I don't think it's the amount of faith that James is trying to get at here. James is kind of unique when he uses this word faith in that he means to commit. Um, to kind of get my point across here, there are a lot of guys that are smarter than me and they say it in a more efficient way. Uh, scholar David, uh, Peter Davis says this, Faith for James is a single-minded commitment to God that trusts in God because God is God. Did you get that? It's not you. It's not your faith is not the problem. It's your faith in God. You see the difference. The focus is not on your faith. It's your faith in God. It's the object of your faith that saves. It's the object of your faith that makes all of the difference. Again, let me say that again. It's a commitment to trust God in God because God is God. Why do we trust the Lord? Because He's trustworthy. Right? He's completely, totally worthy of our trust. He's proven it over and over and over again so we can put our trust in Him. This morning we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. One of my favorite hymns. Listen to what he says, all right? That last verse. Pardon for sin and a peace that endures, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. How gracious is God? Completely, totally, bottomlessly gracious. All we have to do is trust in His faithfulness. Right? Then he goes on to talk about what that doesn't look like. Um, the double-minded man, uh, the doubter. Uh, one of my spiritual commentators called, uh, said that this person was a spiritual schizophrenic. Uh, I don't know if that completely, but we kind of get the picture that, that goes there. Uh, this is the person that has one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. Uh, they want to make sure all their bases are covered. Uh, they will receive nothing from God as they get bounced around in the different storms of life. Uh, just the other night, uh, I was scrolling through uh, a little bit of social media, and uh, I sent Clint the video. I don't know if he... Oh, yeah, you, you did respond to it. Uh, there was a little debate going on between a Christian man and this young lady who was a TikTok influencer. I'm still not real sure what that means. Uh, but anyway, he was asking her some questions. And, and the little clip that I got was only about, uh, probably less than a minute. But he looks at this young lady and he goes, well, I, from your response, I would assume that you're not a Christian. And she goes, oh, no, I am a Christian. And he looks at her and he goes, well, then do you believe the Bible? And she goes, no, of course not. <laughs> and I went, what? what? Rewind that. Let me watch that again. I had to watch it three or four times to get it straight in my mind. Are you a Christian? Well, yes, actually, I am. Well, then you believe the Bible. No, not at all. What? what? What's the disconnect? That's, I think, this double-minded man kind of person. People going around calling themselves Christians, but are they really? They got one foot in the kingdom 
They got one foot in the world. The things they say they believe, they turn around and deny with their life. We all know folks like that, right? She might go to church every once in a while. Maybe so. <laughs> you know, but when, when you, I have a lot, I've talked to a lot of college-age kids throughout the year. Little side, sorry, rabbit trail. And um, I will ask them at the beginning, do you believe in God? And they'll go, well, yeah, of course. And then my second question, because you have to do this nowadays, I'll go, which one? Right? Because you go across our college campuses today and you say the word God, it could be any one of, I don't know, 15 or 20. Pick one. Even You want to know one of the fastest growing religions on college campuses are today? It's called neo-paganism. Some of you might know it as a Wicca. It's being a witch. Casting spells, burning candles, having rocks that you rub, standing naked out in the woods in a salt circle, thinking that you can manipulate your situation around you. That's neo-paganism, right? That is a fast-growing religion on our college campuses today. In other words, they are their own God. They are God. They can control their destiny. They can control your destiny through potions and spells and burning candles and rocks. Uh, and whether Mars is in retrograde or not. Right? That, that's their destiny. That's, that's how they figure out their lives. But this is the picture of the double-minded man, I think. Uh, James goes on and uh, he gives us a couple of illustrations of what these tests might look like. Now, he keeps it very general here, uh, but in verses 9 through 18, uh, listen to what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a uh, flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower fails and its beauty perishes, so also will a rich man fade in the midst of pursuits. All right? One of the ways these temptations or these trials might show up in our life is through our finances. We know that Jesus talked a lot about money, didn't he? Can anybody think of a time, uh, maybe a Bible verse that Jesus uh, mentioned about finances or money? Anything? Sure. Render under Caesar what belongs to Caesar. That's a good perspective. I'm sorry, what? The widow's might. That's a good one. Um, she gave everything that she had, right? Basically, the underlying principle of our finances is ultimately who do all of our finances belong to, right? And we should treat them as they are his. And so James says, you know what? If you don't have a lot, if you are in need, what does he tell them to do? Go back and look at verse 9, uh, nine through uh, 11 again. For those who are lowly, those who are in need, what are they to do? It kind of seems counterintuitive. Rejoice. Rejoice, boast in his exaltation. Wait a minute. He's lowly and means, how can he, what he's talking about is his exaltation in the kingdom. See, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, in the kingdom, we will all be rich, right? We will all have that mansion walking on streets of gold. We will all be rich. And so Paul is reminding them, you might be in need now, you might be lowly now, but keep in perspective 
your exaltation that is coming. Right? And then um, what does he tell those who are a little better off, those who are rich? What are they to do? I'm sorry, what? Oh, keep reading. Uh, blah, 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 blah. What does it say? Yes. They are to remember that their humility, because what can happen to a rich person's wealth overnight? Gone. <laughs> Poof, it's gone. Right? One day, you're at the top of the uh, mountain, and the next day, you're the kid. Y'all ever play, play King of the Mountain growing up? Uh, or is that just a traveler's rest thing? I, I don't know. That might have been a traveler's rest thing where I grew up. Um, we, we used to have this hill out in the middle of the woods. It was about six or eight feet high. And uh, we'd go stand on the top of it. We'd yell, I'm the king of the mountain. And then all the other boys in the neighborhood would come and try to knock you off. Right? Uh, that's what can happen sometimes. You are the king of the mountain, but the next day, because of a little change in the stock market, you're the guy at the bottom of the hill. Uh, so, again, remember, it's not about your wealth. We have to keep that heavenly perspective. And then he goes on again. Uh, he gives another test, another way that these, uh, these trials might show up. And uh, look at verse 12 with me. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted... I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Where does temptation come from, folks? In this case. Can come from the devil. but this desire. It comes from within. It comes from with our own desires, right? Our own sinful, fallen nation, go, uh, <clears throat> nature, going all the way to Genesis chapter 3, right? At the fall, we inherited Adam's sinful nature. We're born that way. We're inclined to do that what is evil, which is why we need a Savior to come in and reverse the curse, if you will, to fix what was broken in us. Because we're broken... And there are not enough works, there are not enough good deeds, there's not enough merit that we can earn to gain our salvation. It is simply a gift of God, and God must give it to us. So again, James reminds us, uh, we're not tempted by God, we're tempted by our own desires, and those own desires lead to sin, more sin leads to death. Outside of God's grace, we deserve his wrath and condemnation. And again, James reminds them of three of God's uh, characteristics. First, he talks about how God is the creator. He is sovereign over everything. There's not one maverick molecule in this whole universe. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. I don't know about you, but that's very, very comforting. A doctrine like the sovereignty of God, we often just think of pie-in-the-sky theology. Sovereignty means nothing sneaks up on God. He's never taken by surprise. Every detail of your life, God is already, not as aware of, but He is in control of. Isn't that comforting? That is to me. Not just that, but God is immutable, which means God is not fickle. He's not like my 11th grade girls' Bible study. Uh, 
not just girls, but guys too. But anyway, um, I, I, I sponsored um, an 11th grade girls Bible study and um, while I was teaching at school, and they would come in in the mornings, and sometimes uh, they would just kind of talk. And uh, I sit there not really wanting to listen because I'm trying to do school stuff, but you can't help but overhear. And uh, it would be, it'd be amazing how fickle uh, sometimes uh, an 11th grade person can be. Uh, one day, they're all best friends. Two hours later, they don't talk to each other. That's being fickle, right? That's what James is saying. God is not like that. We don't have to wake up every morning and go, hmm, how can I appease God today? Can you imagine being one of these ancient pagans uh, and, you know, hail falls out of the sky? Oh, no. I didn't appease the God of hail. I have to go make a sacrifice to him now. Well, then tomorrow it's too hot, so your crops aren't growing. Oh, I have to go appease the God of heat. Right? We don't have to deal with that. God is not fickle. He's immutable. He's unchanging. He's constant. He's enduring. He is the same today as he was yesterday. So we know that God is not going to stand up one day and go, okay, that whole Jesus thing on the cross, I've changed my mind. That's not how you get salvation anymore. I want it all to be done by works now. God's not going to do that because he doesn't change. God is also gracious. Um... He redeems His broken creatures simply because He wants to. It is His benefaction alone. God is gracious because God is gracious. Again, it's who He is. All right, wrapping this up real quick. Transition. And not only does James tell us the purpose of our faith and what that, faith, uh, what that testing might look like, he also instructs us on what genuine faith and practice looks like. Uh, somebody said earlier that it is faith and works. How do those two things work together, right? Uh, the book of James, uh, there are a lot of reformers, uh, Martin Luther in particular, who uh, really stumbled and, and got all caught up with the whole James and saying that it's faith and works, where in other parts of Scripture it just says grace by faith alone. And so they set out, how do you reconcile those two? It's, it's very easy. Genuine faith always lives itself out in good works. Good works do not gain us our faith. It is just that simple. Martin Luther was a brilliant guy. I don't know why he had so much problem with this. But remember, as we go through this last section, James is giving instruction to believers who are facing trials. This is a practical teaching for those who are going through suffering. What does this look like? What does genuine faith lived out every day look like? Somebody read verses 19, 20, and 26. Sorry, I threw you off there. 19, 20, and 26. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every one person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If anyone thinks he is he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. What is James telling us to do here? Your mom has told you to do this all the time. you got one mouth and two ears. Right? What are we supposed to do less of? Talk. Less talk. More hearing. Right. Exactly. And we see this pat we see the same idea all throughout scripture. Ecclesiastes 5:2 is one of my favorite verses. 
Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Let your words be few. Sometimes we just talk too much and it gets us in trouble, doesn't it? Proverbs 10.19 When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. One more. Uh, Proverbs 18.2 A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I gotta admit, when I read that last one, I've been foolish a lot. I loved people to know my opinion. Because I'm always right. If everybody was like me, if everybody had my opinion, the world would be perfect. No problems. Right? So let's talk, listen more, and just one little application of this here. Uh, James goes on to talk about anger at the end. What's that connection? Here it is. The more you listen and the less you talk, I feel like 99% of the time, the result's not going to be in anger. Less talking, more hearing, more often than not, de-escalates the situation, doesn't it? My wife's favorite Bible verse growing up uh, when our children were little, they would start their, you know, how little children are. Uh, she would always say, a soft answer turns away wrath. But, but, soft answer turns away wrath. But mom, you don't, soft answer turns away wrath. And now, uh, you wouldn't believe it, my kids are quoting that to uh, their high school students. One of my sons is a youth pastor, and every time there's a little squabble, David would go, hey, soft answer turns away wrath. Um, what? What does that even mean? Well, think about it, all right? Not just that, uh, but one other way that this uh, faith and practice looks like, uh, verse 22 through 25, if somebody would read that. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. Or if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect laws that set you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Alright. Um, hearing God's word without conformity is not genuine faith. Right? Obedience is what James is talking about here. Genuine faith must be accompanied by love, by compassion. Submission to the word will yield flowers of mercy and charity. I wrote that. I thought that was pretty cool. I'm not a poet, but I thought that was pretty good. Submission to the word will yield flowers of mercy and charity. I didn't know I had a soft side, but apparently I didn't. I didn't know you PCA. Oh! You'll be here all week, folks. Um, seeing imperfections in the mirror we make changes, right? My wife, when she gets up in the morning, gets ready to go someplace, she stands in front of the mirror, she arranges herself. I do it too. I just don't use, you know, makeup. I trim my beard. I get a haircut. Uh, one of the things that Clint ha and I have in common is uh, we like. I just don't like shaggy hair. And the reason is, for me, for me, really, you? you know, like shaggy hair. Um, one of the reasons for me is because when I was growing up, I, my daddy was a Marine, all right? 
So one of the ways that I rebelled against my father was, guess what? I grew my hair out long and shaggy, and it was gross and disgusting, right? I did that just to rebel against him. And, and I, not everybody who has long hair is rebelling against their father. I know that. But for me, when I see it, that's the way that it looks, right? So we see imperfections in the mirror. I knew my hair didn't look good, so when I became a Christian, I was like, all right, it's got to go. And, and you cut your hair, right? We make changes. We look at God's standard, and then we want to reflect. Ah, see what I did there? We want to reflect that standard in the way that we live, right? Outward actions reveal inner thoughts and emotions. If I take the lid off this bottle and I shake it, trials come into my life, different circumstances, right? What comes out of this bottle? What was already in the bottle comes out, right? Whatever is in, you are that bottle. When life comes along and shakes you, whatever is inside of you will come out of that bottle. I have to admit sometimes, anger, gossip, bad emotions, bad feelings. I'll get that afterwards. Don't worry about it. Francis got it. Francis got it. She'll come. Franny's always picking up my slack, right? Whatever is inside of our hearts will come out during these trials. And what James is saying is, look, folks, look in the mirror. And if you see anything that doesn't reflect God and his goodness, we need to get that out. We need to get those things removed. Finally, last little thing, uh, three examples of Christian faith and action. Uh, verse 26 I was going to have somebody read these, but I'm just going to mention verse 26. Uh, look at that real quick. We have to change the way we speak. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, uh, but perverseness breaks the spirit. And I already said a soft answer turns away wrath. Verse 27a, we are to relieve the oppressed. Go back and read the Old Testament. When God's getting ready to send the children of Israel off into exile, you will not believe how many times through the prophets... God says, look, one of the reasons I'm sending you into exile is because you don't take care of widows and orphans. You are oppressing them. And that's wrong, and I'm holding that against you. And then they go off into exile. So if you really want to make God obsess, oppress uh, widows and orphans. That, that gets his attention real quick. And then verse 27, the last thing, we are to avoid moral pollution. Uh, Romans 12, I love the book of Romans. Romans 12, 1 and 2, a uh, good reminder today. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. <coughs> What do we get from all this? Here's what I walk away from. Here's what I want to encourage you with you today. No matter where you are in your walk with God, whether you are at the beginning of a trial or at the end of the trial, whether your faith is strong or your faith is weak, whether you understand who God is or you're just beginning to understand who God is, sometimes you have one of those why me moments. doesn't matter. If you are one of his children, listen, folks, he is faithful. In spite of our faithlessness sometimes, God remains faithful. He is trustworthy. He is good. 
which is why I'm so grateful. It's God thing, gotta be. I don't believe in circumstances that we sing God is uh, great as thy faithfulness this morning. It's a reminder that we all need to hear. No matter where we are, God is faithful to his children. Any thoughts, questions, critiques, criticism? I'm a big boy, I can handle it. All right, well, let me pray for us then. Uh, Father, thank you that you are always faithful, even when we are not. Uh, even when we doubt, we get distracted, uh, we get beat down sometimes, and we, we, our faith gets tired. But we're thankful that you are always good to us. You will draw us back to your side. You are the loving shepherd that takes care of his flock. And that is comforting. And we just want to rest in that today. Help us to grow in our faith. Help us to love you more. Help us to consider the purpose of trials and tribulations, knowing they will grow our faith. So, Father, help us not to dread them, not necessarily look forward to them, but look at them from the proper perspective of you growing us as a good and loving Father. Thank you for this breakfast this morning. Thank you for these folks and their love for you. And uh, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.